Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, happy holidays. Canada Land is off for the holidays. But look, you came here looking for something great to listen to. The least I can do is play you some outstanding stuff from our podcast network that you may have missed. Today, I'm going to play you an episode of Commons. I don't know if you have been listening to Commons, our politics show lately, but it has really hit its stride. It has figured out the kind of politics show that it is. And I think that is a show that is not concerned with what happened last week. In Parliament, it is more concerned with larger issues and the political relevance thereof. And the way they've been handling this editorially has been really effective. And what you're going to hear right now is a story that we don't really think of as a political story, right? The Robert Picton case, this awful serial killer, uh, we have a certain way of covering serial killers in, in, in the media. Well, what is the connection between the Robert Picton case and missing and murdered Indigenous women? That is something that Commons looked at. They talked to a cop who was on the case. They talk about why the police did not move sooner and why more people died than perhaps had to die. And they do a powerful job of defining this as a political problem because that's what it is. So here is that episode of Canada Land Commons. No ads. Happy holidays. Be back soon. Robert Picton. It's a name you're probably familiar with. 
He is Canada's most prolific serial killer. This case itself put missing and murdered women on the map into Canadians' consciousness and is one of the major cases that led to today's national inquiry. Over the course of the next couple of episodes, we are going to speak to families about their engagements with police. We're going to look at police accountability groups, how they function, and what their limitations are. We want to figure it out. How can we better police the police? Is that even possible? First, we're going to look back on a particularly bad moment in history to understand some of the failings of the police system, the Picton investigation. I'm Ryan McMahon. I'm Hadia Rodrigue. From Canada Land, this is Commons. The year is 1998. Lorimer Schenner is the first Vancouver police detective put in charge of investigating the growing number of disappearing women from Vancouver's downtown east side. During Lorimer's first week on the job, he received a tip that the disappearances might be the work of a serial killer and that it might be a man named Robert Picton. Between 1998 and 1999, four other people told the police about Picton's alleged activities. One woman even said she saw Picton butchering a woman in his slaughterhouse. Picton, by the way, already had a criminal record on police files at that point. He was charged with the attempted murder of a sex worker in 1997, but somehow none of this was enough for the police to investigate this at that time. And Picton was only arrested in 2002, four years later. After he was arrested, Robert Picton once bragged to an undercover cop in his jail that he murdered 49 people, all women, many of them sex workers from Vancouver's downtown east side. Now, we won't get into the gory details here. You can Google those later if you wish, because this episode is not about Picton. It's about the cracks in Canada's policing system and how they let this killer keep killing for so long. Today, Ryan is going to bring us a sobering conversation with former police detective Lorimer Schenner about what went wrong in the Picton case. I'm joined by Lorimer Schenner. He is the author of That Lonely Section of Hell, a botched investigation of a serial killer who almost got away, and also self-described recovering cop. Lorimer, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Ryan. We're going to try to circle around your work in the Picton investigation, and we're going to try to connect the work of the police in communities across this country as it pertains to the National Inquiry of Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. But also we're going to zoom out and sort of talk more generally about some of the challenges that police forces face when it comes to the political climate of that conversation. If we could start by going back to 1998 and thinking about the first tip that you received about Picton. Bill Hiscox calls Crime Stoppers, and you were one of the first people to talk to him. What do you remember about that conversation? The first time we spoke, I was struck by just uh, you know how much knowledge he had of the Picton farm and, and of the world that was that farm, because I really knew nothing about it. Bill was a guy that, that had a lot of challenges in his own life, and yet he said to me at one point, I just can't do nothing if there's something going on out here. I, can't, I, would, I will be sick if I didn't say something, and it turns out that there's something to this. He told me of 
a very close friend of his, a woman named Lisa Yelds, who was herself a very close friend of Picton. Her story uh, that she told Bill was that she had seen what she described as bloody clothing in bags and women's ID in Picton's trailer when she was cleaning it. She speculated to Bill that he could have something to do with Vancouver's missing women. In that first call, Bill told me, because right away I said, well, I'd like to talk to her. And he said, you'll never get to talk to her. She's extremely anti-police. She would sooner die than talk to the police, basically. So, you know, he laid out, he was honest. He laid out all the challenges, and but he laid out the information very clearly for me. So I remember that that conversation quite well. Did the details of, of what was shared with you strike you as it being too detailed not to be true? You know, it's funny because it, as detailed as it was, uh, you know, and right away I had a visual of what he was talking about. When you look at it through the lens of the court system and through attempting to obtain a search warrant, which was you know, right away what I was thinking about doing or, or, or hoping I could find a way in through this information, it wasn't detailed enough, unfortunately. And, and that was that's one of the challenges when you have third-hand information and you have somebody who's not cooperative on the far end of it. He couldn't tell me when she had seen these these items. He couldn't tell me anything specific about the identification, you know, if she had noticed any particular name on it. In terms of specificity, which a judge requires to grant a search warrant, I didn't have any of the things in that information that I needed from a legal perspective. As a civilian, certainly I don't know how the system works, that there seems to be much frustration on the ground in communities in regards to cases like these, and especially specifically to the Picton case. What do you need from sources in order to follow up? What are the types of details that that you're looking for that fit within sort of the checklist inside the system that allows you to follow up on these cases? If you've read my book, I mean, you'll understand that, I, that I'm fairly critical of the police in, in a lot of respects. And I think this is one area where I am. The first thing I think people, police have to realize is, is sources are imperfect. They come with their own life baggage. They come with a lot of problems. They're not usually sources because they're upstanding citizens. They're sources because they are on either the fringes or, or right on the inside of, of a lot of criminal activity. So, you know, this was not uh, and this was something that I that I really sensed from the beginning was this was not something he really wanted to be a part of. So Lisa Yelds comes forward, tells Hiscox of, about what she saw, and he says, well, she wouldn't want to talk to you because she doesn't trust police, she's anti-police. And this is something that we hear time and time again from marginalized communities, from racialized communities that cooperating with the police or being involved with the police, period, is not something we want to welcome into our lives. What what do you think of that as a, as a form, former police officer, that fundamental challenge of being able to bridge that gap between marginalized communities and the police? You know, I place the blame for that dynamic squarely on the shoulders of the police and the criminal justice system because I don't think historically the police have taken the time to try to understand the communities that they serve. The community they serve is the entire community. It's not just all the people that look like them or live lives like their lives. It's everybody that, that they serve. You hear police all the time complaining about sources or, come, oh, why don't people come to us? Why don't they trust us? And, and they, I, I, I'm a big believer in, in, in intersectionality and that all these things come together. And, I, and I, I can't help but sort of compare it to 
some of the debates that we have every summer around pride parades and the police coming in uniform. And it's challenging for me that the police seem to have no ability to grasp the fact that that uniform is a symbol and that that uniform in and of itself can be very triggering. And yet the police are just oblivious to that. They seem to have no interest in forming any critical thought around it or deconstructing some of their own beliefs to the point where they actually look honestly at the institution of policing and, and what you know, historical baggage that it, it carries for a lot of people. You know, I subsequently found out that quite a few women in Vancouver's downtown east side had gone to the Picton farm, they'd known about him, and yet they hadn't talked to us. And I, you know, I, I don't think I was perfect by any stretch, but I'd like to think I had some decent relationships um, with quite a few of the women in the downtown east side. And yet, you know, many of them still did not come to me with that information. And I I don't blame the women for not coming to us. I blame the system that they didn't feel safe or supported to do that. Yeah. I think that that's not a surprise that people don't feel safe coming forward. And I mean, I I don't want to be a, a police apologist here, but the job of, of the police in major cities, it's a complex, difficult job. And I think that we are very quick to throw the police under the bus anytime we see anything go wrong in our communities. But can some of that blame be shared by prosecutors, by judges, by the laws themselves in terms of the way we are failing marginalized communities? Well, I think I sort of see that in two parts. Um, yes, I think that th that some of that blame can certainly be shared. You know, you certainly have a very colonized and paternalistic court and and uh, justice system, and then you have you know an Indian Act that is in, is inherently problematic and on so many levels. So you have that dynamic going on, and I certainly agree with you that you know policing is a very 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 difficult job, even on the very best day. What I see as a problem is that there's a real disconnect between the people on the ground in policing and the institution of policing. You know when I when I am critical of the police, I'll often have some of my police friends say, hey, but you know, I'm a good guy or, or, or she's a really good detective or, you know, and they point to the individual. They always say, well, look at these individuals who are doing, who are trying so hard. And I agree that there are fantastic people who are trying to do the job of policing, but they don't even realize that they are continually banging up against that institutional ceiling where in the same way, the court system, a lot of the laws are based in very, are just really predicated on a lot of wrong ideas and stereotypes, it's the same in policing, that the leadership in policing has not kept up. They haven't kept up. Instead of taking a really, a really hard look at policing as an institution and, and asking, how can we be better? They have hunkered down and become very defensive. And that's such a knee-jerk reaction of police leaders. You'll see the rare occasion, which is great. You know, I, I, that's something that's relatively new. You know, when I look at, at when I began my career 27 years ago, you didn't ever hear a police chief say, you know, yeah, I, I really can see that this is something we need to be better at. It's changing. But there's still a disconnect because the people on the ground, they, they keep thinking, well, I don't understand it. Why, are, why does everybody hate the police? I'm, I'm really doing the best job I can for the community. And I try to tell them, you're one person and you're fighting against history. So what needs to change inside of the system and what needs to change in regards to police culture to better serve marginalized communities? I 
believe it comes down to accountability. I believe that if the public and if good police officers could see the institution of policing and the courts showing that there is accountability for bad behavior, there's accountability for for criminal action when the police when the police shoot mentally ill people, when they shoot unarmed people of color, when these tragic things happen, there needs to be accountability. You know, and I'm not obviously suggesting that you, you convict people when the evidence isn't there, but deconstructing the way that these trials and the way that these, these court cases even come to being and the ways that some of these decisions are arrived at, I think that we could do better. You know, here's a good example, and, and I use this a lot because it to me it really highlights why people get frustrated in the community and people in policing get frustrated because you look at the RCMP uh, settlement. They had se- over 100 women, and I think men as well, complaining of sexual harassment and sexual assault within the workplace, within the RCMP itself. And they settled that lawsuit a year, year and a half ago for, I think, $100 million or something. And it was a very, very significant settlement, which is great, but I would challenge anyone to tell me how that's going to change behavior because not one police officer was fired in that whole thing. Not one police officer was sanctioned in any way. And so what does that, you know, what does that tell the community? What does that tell those women and men in the RCMP who are harassed? It says, yeah, we're going to pay you. Here you go. But there's no, there are no repercussions for your abusers. Zero. It's the same in the court. I mean, it's rare that police go to court. And I'm not suggesting that every time a police officer fires their gun, they end up in court. Sometimes right. there are things that happen that are, are necessary, and I, and I do accept that. However, there absolutely have to be checks and balances in place so that police never abuse that power and that the community feels comfortable that if they do abuse that power, there will be repercussions. So let's talk about this in relation to missing and murdered Indigenous women. Because of the inquiry, I know we're talking about Indigenous women, but we should be talking about two-spirit people, trans people. But the National Inquiry has only focused on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Are you disappointed in that decision to not frame the conversation to include two-spirit people in the inquiry? I'm keenly sensitive to that issue. I'm, I'm a trans man myself. I have always had that inclusion top of mind. And in many of the things that I've heard uh, when I've watched some of the live feeds from, from the various hearings, they almost always mention two-spirit and queer people. So I do believe that, that the inquiry itself is mindful of that. And you know, in the same way that the police are not mentioned in the terms of reference, I, I don't believe that was by accident or by omission. I think that was actually a calculated, a calculated move to not put the police on the defensive from the get-go because I think, I think they're well aware of the way police respond when they are put in a place of defensiveness. They'll just hunker down and you'll never get a, you won't get one report out of them. Yeah, I guess I'm on the other side of the conversation where I've talked with many people, with family members that, that were trans and that have, that certainly feel excluded out outside of the conversation. And and the reason why I brought it up specifically was just the data tells us that two-spirit queer trans people disproportionately face face violence. And it seems like the system fails them more often. Is that accurate 
to say that queer, two-spirit, trans people are failed more disproportionately by police than, than other communities? Absolutely, because being, at that time, a closeted trans person, I was very keen to those issues. So we had a couple of people on our list who were, who were transgender, and it never, ever occurred to me to consider them as part of the list any more than anyone else. However, absolutely, there are just horrible stories across the country of trans, queer, two-spirit people being not considered part of the missing women because they're not quote unquote real women, you know, the whole thing. It's, right. it's been, right. it's disrespectful all the way down the pipe in their numbers, even calculating statistics for trans queer two spirit people in terms of homicides or, or missings are so hard because the police themselves mis misgender them. So they end up going into a different category. They're either, they're either misgendered as male or they're, they're not properly calculated the reporting has been right. so poor. What do police forces do to assist officers in better understanding the complexity of these people's lives? One of the sad realities of, of modern policing is that training budgets are, are reduced from what they used to be. There is an increasing focus on equipment, toys, you know, the biggest gear, you know, you get these yeah. huge, big command vehicles that, and, you know, a lot of money is available for that. And there's very little money available for training. Police people, their knowledge of trans issues comes from, you know, from Orange is the New Black or I Am Kate. You know, they don't get to actually hear and meet real trans people. And, you know, I will have to say right. that's, that's an area where I, I can give the VPD a bit of credit. And that's that they have, they have formed some partnerships with trans activists in the community and had them come for, uh, in for training. How it's been received, I don't know, but I, I know generally it's positive. And I think the VPD created a video about trans people and trans lives that, that was quite, that was uh, considered quite good. It, you know, but then I, on the flip side of that, I, I heard a story a few months ago from a VPD colleague of mine who said that there's a there's a videotape floating around the VPD that some young patrol officers made when they were driving around the downtown east side and they spotted a, a transgender woman woman that they knew on the street and they started rolling the video inside the car and making a bunch of comments and really derogatory conversation about it and they thought this was hilarious to videotape it. Now I know it's been it's one of those things that's been bounced around internally. It hasn't seen the light of day, but it just goes to show that there are still attitudes that are very problematic. If these, these are people tasked with protecting trans people and, and making sure that when they're victimized that they, that they get a fair and compassionate treatment, and yet they're still, they're still making jokes. I think that police people in general need to be recruited with more education behind them. That's the key, but it's, it's really difficult to educate when your, your biggest priority is a, you know, a $10 million all-terrain, bulletproof urban response vehicle. Circling back to the National Inquiry, their interim report was just released on November 1st, and it calls for a civilian body. The feds are not committed. Public Safety Canada is considering it. Do you have thoughts on what a civilian body might look like? I'm so indoctrinated still, even four or five years out of policing, that I, I still have that sort of default um, sense of what their answer would be to that and, and the, the response that the police would have to a civilian body in anything because it's always been the same. It's always, they don't, people outside of policing don't understand policing. You know, there are so many people studying policing now, 
studying policing as an institution and connecting it you know with social justice and and with statistics on violence i think that a, a civilian body it can no longer be retired police people it can't be you know people who necessarily have an investigative background at all i think that it has to be people who come at it from an educated perspective but but educated with significant life experience so that they understand the real world i think when we get into the minutia of individual cases i think that's where we get bogged down these civilian bodies need to take a bigger picture view first of policing and criminal justice system as a larger entity as as a macro problem and then those people i think could sit down and look at these cases and be able to apply that that lens to it and i think that would change the way that we see some of these investigations and the way they're approached are there civilian bodies that oversee the police in british columbia and and are you able to talk about that i do know that there are some issues right now we have the independent investigation office which is a start it was um, set up i think five or so years ago and it was the first independent investigative body where there were not supposed to be any police people on it. I think they had to hire some some retired police people just because one of the problems is criminal investigations is such a specialized area that, you know, to have somebody come in who had never investigated a murder file or never taken a, a homicide case all the way through the court system, it's really challenging. And so I think that there was some thought that for the first few years, they would have some experienced former police people who would do that work and then that they would subsequently, they would sort of be phased out. They've had a lot of growing pains. I know in the first few years, they had a lot of people resign. And now there's been quite a lot of pushback from some of the police organizations uh, in terms of some of the investigations because there's been, you know, I know the Vancouver police right now are are in a bit of a battle with the IAO because... The allegations are that the IAO is asking police officers to provide statements when they haven't had a chance to prepare. Uh, The police believe they should be able to talk to other police involved in an incident and be able to, I guess, compare notes. It's difficult. I don't think that's actually ideal um, for either side. I I don't think, you know, I don't think it's something we allow. uh, We don't allow suspects in criminal court to do that. And that's not to say that, that, you know, in some of these investigations that the police are under a criminal lens at that point, because they're not usually. But I think we only have to look at the Robert Kazansky case to see some of the problems when you have several police officers involved in the same incident having an opportunity to to potentially sit down and, and get their story straight. What are your thoughts on a national police task force to perhaps even help with that transition provincially and inside of cities with civilian oversight bodies? Absolutely. I actually think it should be a standing body for the foreseeable future. I don't think that the average citizen has a real grasp of just how little accountability there is in Canada for policing organizations. When I talk about the National Inquiry with people and they say, well, you know, they've got to, they've got to do this, they've got to get the police in line and they've got to get to the bottom of what the police are doing. And, and, I, and I agree with them. And But then I tell them, you know, the problem with that is there are actually no mechanisms that exist to do that. And there's nothing right. that said, there's no way for any any body to go into a policing organization and 
demand the sharing of files. You know, if the police don't want you to see a file, you're never going to know it exists. That's the fact. If they don't want you to have access to all of a file, they have the ability under Freedom of Information, they have, there's, a, there's a section called Investigative Necessity, and they are able to redact whole portions of a file and call it Investigative Necessity. Even if it's an investigation that's been cold for 30 years, they can say that. And, and I understand that. There's, there are things, there are times, you know, there's, there's information like what's called holdback information, which is important information that's used when you get a suspect into an interrogation room and only the person who did the crime would actually know this information. So it's important to hold that back from the public. And I absolutely understand the utility of that. But I can tell you the police invoke investigative necessity all the time for way more than, than needs to be needs to be utilized. And I think that people would be shocked to know that just how little power governments have to compel the police to cooperate. This inquiry is, is a very delicate dance because, like I said, if they, if they push too hard, the police will hunker down. They'll just say, fine, this is here, here are your files. And you get this ridiculous yeah. bit of information. And the families have seen that over and over already. You know, the families have asked to see some of their loved ones' files and they've been denied, which I think is wrong. There's very little in those files that can't be shared, in my opinion. Yeah, this is um, that's a sobering reflection it's a bit shocking to hear, frankly. I, I wasn't really aware of how that works and, and that process. Lorimer, you left policing on medical leave due to PTSD experienced through the process of investigating Picton. I wanted to ask you about your first day on the job as a police officer and your last day on the job. So I'll tell you my first day actually on the road um, out of the academy. It was kind of funny because I ended up coming to my squad in the downtown east side on a team training day and so we did a buy and bust drug project so immediately they chose me as the drug buyer because i was a new face on the street and hadn't arrested anybody down there so uh, they figured i would have the best chance of of scoring some drugs so so i went walking down to pigeon park pretty busy drug area just kind of walked walked around a bit right away i had three or four dealers come up to me and you know say what do you want what do you want you want up you want down and and it was kind of overwhelming because I'm a bit of a people pleaser and I, <laughs> I wanted to buy buy dope from everybody. And, and so, uh, you know, I had some cash in my pocket. So I kind of just looked at, at each of them and I said, well, I don't know, what do you got? And then this kind of little quiet guy sidles up beside me and he says, well, he says, I got, I got some acid. Do you want some acid? And I said, yeah, let me have a look at that. And so I picked a few out, gave him the money and, and uh, gave the signal to the cover team so they'd know, know who to arrest. And I jam the blotters in my hand and it was kind of a hot day and I squeezed them tight in my fist because I was told all about you know the continuity of evidence and that I uh, couldn't let go of this I had to keep my hand on it the whole time so I said okay and I jam my hand in my pocket and walk back down the street towards the towards the car that was waiting for me and down an alley and I got in the car and my my cover team were in there and they said they said awesome what'd you get and I said oh I got acid and they're saying oh great and I started kind of seeing these squiggles on the window on the on the car, oh, no. on the car beside me and I was <laughs> and I'm staring at the window and I start seeing spiders like running down the window like rain but it's not raining out and right away one of my partners he goes he goes Laura he goes open up your hand open your hand and I'm like what what and I'm, st I'm just I'm looking at the spiders and they're they're like oh no so I open oh, my hand no. and, and the 
the acid had had seeped through my skin because it's transdermal, right? So I had ingested some of it through my skin. So I was so I had a pretty good buzz going for about a half an hour. I was seeing all kinds of things, and, and they just got me back to the office and sat me in a chair and just told me not to talk too much. And that was the end of it. But oh, my last no. day was my last day was a lot less fun. It was a lot different, and I um I had a great job actually for the last ten years, which is really the only reason I was able to hang in there. I worked alone in this really great office and I did threat assessment, which was very interesting. But it was the December 24th after the final report had come out from the BC Missing Women's Inquiry. The report came out, I think, on the 17th and I was sitting there on on Christmas Eve and, you know, I was kind of thinking, do I go back home? You know, I wasn't feeling very good. I'd been pretty depressed since the, um, I thought that when the report came out, I would feel better and I, I didn't feel better at all. And Anyway, I just was sitting in my office and I thought, you know what, I I can't, I don't want to do this job anymore. And I packed up all my uniforms and I gave my, I'd given my gun to my boss a few days before because I said, I don't even want to have my gun right now. And he's like, okay, packed all my stuff up and I took it over to stores, which is where they give you all the gear. And I tossed it all on the counter and uh, went back to my office and turned the lights out, closed the door and went home. I really want to say thank you very much to you for sharing your journey and being so open about uh, the challenges that you faced uh, as a police officer. Well, thanks, Ryan. I really appreciate being here. So that was pretty revealing. Ryan, what was that like? I think the first thing that I want to say, I think many people that studied this case and looked at this case said a lot of the difficulty is that the murders weren't happening in Vancouver. The abductions were happening in Vancouver, but the murders were happening in RCMP jurisdiction and they did not work together in this case. Getting those two bodies to work together is a huge gap and it's a, it's a major, major problem. Lorimer telling us that the, the Vancouver Police Department are unable to get search warrants without RCMP cooperation is maddening to say the least. Putting together the call for the National Police Task Force, I think is a step in the right direction to maybe work through these jurisdictional issues and look at how these departments need to work more closely together in cases like this. My head spins when I think about how close police departments can get to solving these murders and then something just happens where jurisdictionally uh, it's out of their hands. It's it's maddening. Yeah, I guess my question is, why do these jurisdictional challenges exist? How how does it make solving a crime easier for the Vancouver police to have to go through the RCMP? I mean, you would think that each of the bar- the boards would want, or each of the parties would want each other's help in solving crimes. Right. Exactly. It is complicated because you know the the National Inquiry midterm report calls on the National Police Task Force, but also calls on the civilian oversight body. And that seems really complicated too. I mean, civilians certainly don't know the inner workings of police forces and investigations. And these are really complicated issues. And it it seems to me that we need some good faith on both sides, both in in the public with, with us as civilians, but also maybe more importantly with the police to have an honest conversation about the failings of police departments. And and like Lorimer said, you know, you get on the wrong side of these guys and they don't have to cooperate. You know, you file a FIPA, it doesn't mean you're going to get the full file. You're not going to receive all the paperwork that's available. They, they can withhold. I don't know if I agree about 
the civilian oversight in that, you know, they can't, like, they're not police, and so they can't really understand. Policing should be something that should be easily comprehensible to people. The public should know what the police are doing and how they're doing it. It shouldn't be some sort of black box mystery that no one can understand. What you're doing should have enough clear guidelines and enough planning and foresight and thought that it's easily communicatable to an oversight body. We see time and time again, you, you can't trust people to police themselves. They're, of course, going to look out for their best interests. They're not, you know, because, you know, hurting one member means possibly hurting themselves in the future. Enacting stricter rules means stricter rules are going to apply to them. There needs to at least be some sort of, you know, commingling of civilians and and police or having at least the police be in mind. If you have a concern that the civilians won't understand exactly what the police do, then you have a minority of police on that on that oversight or accountability board, but that the civilians will always have the majority so that it can't become this club that just protects um, those that you're investigating. Yeah. And I think one of the findings of the inquiry, uh, the BC inquiry was that, you know, the Picton case failings are failings of, of police culture, but also failings of, of human beings. Like Picton is not an anomaly. Uh, you know, he, he is, and he's, he's not the boogeyman. He's a serial killer. And there are other serial killers in Canada, living in Canada. And, and you know, the failings of pol- the police here, of course, is that they didn't see these women as, as human beings. They didn't see the value in their lives and therefore, you know, didn't go, um, didn't go into their service of this community in an honorable way, in a just way. And, um, you know, it, who the police serve and, and in what way is, is a major question. And I know, I know the police will say, oh, well, we serve everyone the same, the same way. Um, the honor of the badge is, is directly tied to being honorable, right? In communities. So, so yeah, this is, um, this, 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 this isn't an isolated incident. I, we, I think we know police, uh, treat some communities well and, some communities not so well. You know, what? what is the nature of policing? Because I thought it was supposed to protect our society, um, to make things safer, to catch the bad guys. But we have to look at who they're defining as bad guys and um, what their inherent culture is. Um, you know, what do they define their job as? Because I think it would be very different than what you think it's supposed to be. Uh, <sighs> to be continued. <laughs> Next episode, we dig deeper into police accountability in Canada. We'll take a close look at specific groups in Canada that are tasked with the difficult job of holding police accountable. And we'll speak to some families themselves. Here's a little taste of what's coming up. As for the police, you don't know the impact that you've had on me by not doing anything or not looking into her death because I got no closure and I know she was murdered. I know in my heart. That's our Commons episode for this week. I'm Ryan McMahon. And I'm Hadia Rodrigue. Thanks for tuning in. We'd love to hear your feedback about this episode. If you have feedback for us, or if you just want to rant about politics, record a voice memo and feel free to send it to our producer, abby at canadalandshow.com. 
This episode is produced by Abby Madan. Our music is produced by Nathan Burley. If you want to get at us, find us online. And if you like what we do, please support us. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.